Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid, so scared to do what I wanted. In looking back, I can see all the mistakes that I made, and I wish that I could talk to me and tell me I can change. Don't be afraid. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica, and I'm your host. Um, Tonight is April 3rd, 2012, and we have a very special guest, Stanton Peel, uh, the author of nine books. And uh, he is going to be on. He's not in the queue yet. He's not calling, so I am going to just read some of the news um, for the day or the most updated stuff. So... um, I have a story here from the New York Times from March 18th. Insider trading charges center on Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Uh, The government's sweeping crackdown on insider trading has focused on hedge fund trading floors and corporate boardrooms. On Tuesday, it reached into Alcoholics Anonymous. The story was uh, reported by John Locke, the Seattle Times, via the Associated Press. Federal regulations charged a money manager with trading on confidential information about the acquisition of a Philadelphia-based insurance company passed to him by an executive at the insurer. The two men attended AA meetings together, and the insurance executive had confided in the money manager that the stress of the deal was driving him to drink, according to the complaint. Um, The Securities and Exchange Commission filed a civil lawsuit against Timothy J. McGee, a former investment advisor at Ameriprise Financial Services, accusing him of illegally buying the stock of the Philadelphia Consolidated Holding Corporation. The insurance executive, identified as the insider in the SEC complaint, was not charged. Um, Four people were charged uh, alongside Mr. McGee, his business partner at America, Ameriprise, Michael W. Zerinsky, and three others supposedly tipped off about the deal by Mr. Zerinsky. The five defendants collected reaped more than $1.8 million in illegal profits after Philadelphia Consolidated was inquired by the Japanese insurer Tokyo Marine Holdings, the SEC said. Um, I have another story about 18, but I'm going to bring on, it looks like Stanton might be here, so... Uh, if you just hold on one second, I want to give you a decent introduction. Um, Stanton Peel, which is, he's a Ph.D., he's a lawyer, a psychologist, um, a psychotherapist, and the author of books and articles on the subject of alcoholism, addiction, and addiction treatment. Um, he has uh, won the 1989 Rutgers Centers of Alcohol Studies Mark Keller Award for Alcohol Studies for his article, The Limitations of Control of Supply Models for Explaining and Preventing Alcoholism, and drug addiction. 
let's see. Peel is the author of nine books, including Love and Addiction in 1975, The Meaning of Addiction, Diseasing of America, The Truth About Addiction and Recovery with Archie Brodsky and Mary Arnold, Resisting 12-Step Coercion with Charles Buff and Archie Brodsky in 2001, Seven Tools to Beat Addiction, and, and then Addiction Proof Your Child, um, as well as 250 professional publications. And uh, it is tonight, I'm really happy to bring him on, so let's bring him on. Hello there. Monica, how Dancing. good to be with you. What's <clears> up? <throat> how are you? I'm so happy that uh, to appear in your, you know, wide-ranging, well-acknowledged show. Oh, thank you so much. It's probably close to a year when I had you on, and I was kind of new at this, so I'm really happy to have you back on. And this time I have two of your books. And, uh, uh-huh. Yeah. And, and um, we, I understood that you wanted to focus a little bit on what it means to have children emerge from addiction, avoid addiction in the first place, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maybe how we can reduce, well, what it would take to produce a less addicted generation. Mm-hmm. Although I have to confess I'm a little bit pessimistic on that score. Well, let me ask you a question. <laughs> Do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about our coming generation's likelihood of being addicted? Do you think there will be less, more, or the same likelihood of addiction as we have? Uh, I think that they're going to be less. And the reason, I think, is I have a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old, and one really turned around just because of the knowledge that then I I got and gave to him and um, watched somebody just really change what they were doing once you don't preach the other stuff to them. And I think because of the Internet, Stanton, and there is a whole movement of us um, that are really reaching and trying to make it a more than just a bunch of bloggers, you know, um, that I think, uh, you know, it, I think... I'm not as pessimistic. I was in the beginning that it was a very big task that we had. And I felt a little sorry for you because I thought, man, Stanton has been at this for <laughs> like 30 years or longer, right? Uh-huh. And you and, thought, like, what, they cure addiction I wouldn't have anything to do with myself? No, but, I mean, you were. did you ever feel lonely out there? You always had enough, you know, um, other professionals? Well, there's two different know? questions there. My and... Incredible staying power. Um, yeah. That's a topic I could talk about for a long time. I mean, let me just put out one example that I recently, well, I'm talking to somebody about. The DSM-5 is going to recognize addiction. A gambling is addiction. Uh, compulsive gambling is an addiction. Mm-hmm. Now, I wrote Love and Addiction in 1975, mm-hmm. and every mainstream psychiatrist, everyone, <clears throat> would re- would ridicule the idea that things that weren't didn't involve dr- drugs and alcohol could be addictive. Every mm-hmm. one of them. And now, almost, well, let me see, 1975 to 19, <clears throat> it's about 35 years, I think. Yeah. Uh, now mainstream psychiatry is beginning to accept and recognize that addiction is not limited to substances. 
So I'm expecting to win the Nobel Prize shortly, personally. Uh, I don't know if you have any connections in that regard. <laughs> I have none. I have none. But I am going to be buying a lot of your books because I'm going to be the speaker at a PTA meeting at a high school locally, and I'm going to be bringing your book. Well, let me bring up two topics then about what happens in high school. And uh, here's two things I'm aware of. One, if they have Drug Prevention Day at, at your child's high school, what does that consist of usually? You know, I don't know. They got rid of the D.A.R.E. program. Like, they cut the funding. So, I mean, my sons had the D.A.R.E. program when they were, like, in fourth and fifth grade before they ever were going to, you know, nobody right. was doing drugs. in. What, yeah, I, would, and, yeah. I don't know. I have to ask them. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. So there's something even cheaper. That's a pretty important question, I think, because, well, I'll tell you what my experience is. In general, they troop in recovering addicts and alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And uh, for reasons that you and I might both share, uh, views that we both share, that's exactly the opposite of what you need for a number of reasons. Um, the things that uh, I, I actually have an article coming out. Mm-hmm. I'm just reading the proofs for it. And uh, let me just kind of <clears throat> read something from it. Okay. And um, it's kind of relevant, I think, to what makes for an effective addiction treatment um, prevention program and, you know, what actually is likely to be done. Um let me see if I can pull it up here. Where's it going to be? Where's this article? It's going to be published in, I have galley proofs of it. <clears throat> the article is AA and Abstinence as Prevention Techniques. That's the title of it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's be, <clears throat> so, you know, I review the most important thing, uh, uh, You know, who becomes more addicted than others? This is a pretty good article. I wrote it with somebody whose name must remain anonymous. Really? um, Because he was forced to withdraw his name from writing with me. So I'm not quite where I want to be. Hey, well, while you're looking, in your book, Addiction Proof Your Child, I just opened it and I had underlined this line. On 82, it says the children most at risk for abusing substances are those least likely to assume adult values, discipline, and maturity. This is a deficiency many children now seem to have. And I like the whole part in here where you talk about, you know, in fact, I think I read it the other night or one of my other shows recently where um, the kids at the Baby Boomers, like we used to just leave and go out with our bikes and come back at dinner time on Saturday. I mean, my mother didn't drive me around at 13 to like Van Cortlandt Park, and we drove, we rode our bikes from like 207th Street <coughs> up to 2nd I've heard that story 10 million times. Um, yeah. Did you find I it? Just, you know, I work at a cafe, and then I went across the street for some lunch, and there was a woman sitting there. How did we get, I just taught my son, my grandson, to ride his bike this past weekend. And we got into that discussion. She was the fourth of fifth kids, the first girl. She grew up in a rural area. Um, And, you know, she described just being out in the fields 
on her own. She said her landlord, I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn, told her this story. When he was a kid, his mother would find him playing in the house, and she'd say, would you get out of the house? And they used to have to go out of the house, and on a really cold day, they would hover, they would, I'm missing the word here, they would huddle together in the subway stop, they were so cold. You'd get arrested for that today. (laughs) And yet it was considered like, go out of the house and play. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was an article in the New York Times um, by a a man named Egan who reviewed a book. Um, I actually, I'm getting backed up on all of my, um, all of the things that I want to read to you. But but this was in my blog. um, Oh my God! I mean, I love this book. I'm, in fact, I'm telling you, I, you know, I'm reading your other book now. Okay, so I was reading it, and the last three days I've been reading the truth about addiction and recovery, and the life process. Uh, what's it called? Your your life life you know? process program. Yeah. Which I'm now. <clears throat> I'm uh, you know I I took it over from um, my former partners. I now possess it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know I'm busy. Um, yeah, what are you doing with promoting it? that again? Mm-hmm. I'm uh, I'm on the path to uh, bringing it back in different guises that you know I'm going to reveal at some point sh- shortly. Oh, good because you know the world needs it. We really need. These it's other going options. to be really big. <clears throat> but okay. let me just read to you. Let's not let's not get too far. This is just uh, from an article in the New York. Times, I just wrote a blog in Psychology Day. Maybe the future is not golden. Okay. And um, here's what I, you know, um, speaking about what we were just talking about. Right. um, About what it means to play outside. There's actually, a guy actually wrote an article, and this is what it's called, and it was called... uh, Nature Deficit Disorder, that was the title of the article, by Timothy Mm -hmm. Egan. Egan recounts the disastrous physical effects of not going outside. Heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, certain kinds of cancer, medical costs associated with obesity and inactivity are nearly $150 billion a year. But he And he talks about a, a book called Last Child in the Woods, by a man named Richard Louv, L-O-U-V. And kids who do play outside are less likely to get sick, to be stressed, or become aggressive, and are more adaptable to life's unpredictable turns, Louv said. Since his book came out, things have gotten worse. Mm -hmm. And the woman I was across the table from at this lunch place actually said something quite insightful, which I agree with, which is, when you're out on your own playing or when you're with, like, other kids, you face problems and you have to solve them on your own. Mm-hmm. That may seem like a pretty small statement, but there is nothing more important to being able to deal with life than facing difficulties and overcoming them. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you would know what I would say the relationship between that ability or inability has to do with addiction, Monica. Would you have a sense of where that would fit into my addiction equation? 
Well, that you have control over your own life and make choices that are, you know, you find out which is a choice that's a, a good choice and you make a mistake out there. Uh, you find out, you know, what is, you're in charge. Who else is in charge? Exactly. And so then you would be aware that I would say um, <clears throat> the absence of that experience is not a good predictor of mental health or the ability to resist addiction. Mm-hmm. I say that the growing lack of that, and it's just, it's irreversible. You know, that guy Lou wrote the book, but kids play less outside all the time. Mm-hmm. Things that would be considered um, <clears throat> normal or ordinary are now considered exceptional and really almost illegal. I was with a woman and her son, yeah. They live in quite a, a rural area, and he also grew up in a rural area with a mother, and he said he used to camp out with his friends, and I said, at what age did you do that? And all night, yeah. night after night in the summer, and I said, at what age did you do that? And he said, I don't know, 10, and then he said, maybe a little bit younger, and, you know, I was just sitting there, I didn't even say anything. He would never let his children do that. And if he did, they'd probably arrest him. <sighs> I mean, what kind of person lets a nine-year-old... And, of course, this guy, I won't say what his job is or anything. He's a, a very high-ranking government official. Uh-huh. And he's a... He's a... You know, and he he's a problem solver. And, you know, you think back to staying up all night with a bunch of friends, not staying up all night, staying out all night. I don't know if they cooked on a pot. Mm-hmm, they had mm-hmm. a divide up, like, where everybody slept. They had to get to bed. They had to make their beds. They had to pitch the tent. I mean, right. no, wonder he's, no wonder he's so capable. <clears throat> so that's point one about where um, I think um, we're going wrong. Let me. I'm going to read some things. I debated a man who was a former clinical director of uh, of uh, Hazleton. His name's Saul Selby. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to read from this thing. He's a recovering alcoholic himself. He reported during my debate with him that his own two children drank casually. Mm-hmm. That is, they're neither binge drinkers nor abstainers. But when the moderator, who is in recovery himself, asked him, Selby, for advice on how to talk to his own young children about alcohol, Selby joked that he had threatened to maim his children if they drank. Oh, my God. What do you think of the response? Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, I I don't think he's telling the truth. Right, right, right. I don't believe that he did that. Since he had already said that he knew his kids drank, I mean, they're older now. Right, right, right. And seemed to be okay with that, his statement was obviously fatuous. And and thus, this critical topic was dismissed as fodder for humor, an illustration really of how AA and abstinence approaches have no relationship to the actual worlds of young people. He apparently had decided, Selby, he was made uncomfortable by the juxtaposition of his AA philosophy and the crucial issue of conveying to his children a non-addictive vision of alcohol or for that matter, any other potentially addictive involvement. Now, I want to point out, mm-hmm. he did do that. His kids were not addicted, and right. I I speculated that he raised his own children in a stable home. He wasn't mm-hmm. raised in a stable home. 
Mm. He avoided confronting his children with dire images of the consequences of drinking. I don't think he did that maiming thing. Mm-hmm. He provided his children with the essential elements for psychological health, security, confidence, social skills, education, self-regard, and I think probably a good degree of independence. But he was afraid to talk about that. Can you believe Why? that? In other words, what's Why? he really thinking about? What? I mean, do you think he really is thinking about that? I want to tell you, though, that we have a bunch of chat people in the chat room. Some of them think, I want to make you a cup of tea with some honey. They hear you like this. Does he need to take a break for some water? Do you have a cold? Are you getting over a cold? You won't believe this, <clears throat> but I did six hours of video- videoing today. Uh, oh, you kind of talked out? No, I'm 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 going to go with you, but thank you for noticing it. It's typical of you. They, they are, so along with this, so yeah, go ahead. And meanwhile, this is what Hazelton's doing. In 2011, Hazelton began a 30 million dollar expansion of its youth treatment facility. Oh, I know uh, our mutual oh, that's friend. That's painful. Wait, Stanton, that's really painful. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So apparently, Hazelton. Oh, what? My talking? No, what you just said. I mean, I know about that story from the bloggers, but that's. Horrific that they're going to say spend. But here's the more important part. Hazelton now Selby was the former clinical director of Hazelton. Apparently, Hazelton, like Selby, is more comfortable with the idea of having young people identify themselves as alcoholics and addicts, Mm. rather than assisting them either to avoid substance problems in the first Mm. place, or recognizing their plasticity during youth. In other words, Uh. a lot of people drink more than they should and do things they shouldn't when they're 18 and 25. We know that. We know that. Mm-hmm. And their main goal at Hazelden is to make sure they lock themselves into that addiction. And that fits into another story, the story of all these recovery campus houses where yeah. kids who were 21. So, your Monica, your optimism, based on your child, I mean, we're looking at the fact that we're creating more and more treatment for kids. We're telling kids if they ever encounter any problems, they've got to be in recovery. You know, at the age of 21, what does that mean? Well, I mean, you're actually one of the people that can speak about that. Right. You know, if you live to be 81, you're not going to have a drink for 60 years. That's the concept. You're yeah, going to decide you're an alcoholic yeah, it's, at 21 it's it's for 60 more years. No, we have to stop it. Like, there's a story here that with this kid, I guess this is in Cushing, um, this kid in uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma, was ordered into the state prison boot camp program for six months, was released from custody for a 10-year probation because he was driving a truck wild, okay, and went through some roadblocks. And guess where they're sending him? In court Friday, the judge followed prosecutor Deborah Vincent's recommendation that might be placed on probation, considering to keep his job and attending AA or Narcotics Anonymous meetings for a year, performing 50 hours of community service. So where's I want that to say that, this kid is going to be, you know, taught about harm reduction or about the life program that you have, or, uh, you know, I, that's I, that's not going to happen though. Yeah, well, you know what? I'm not going to stop till. I mean, there's a whole group of us. I think there needs to be. I'm going to form a nonprofit, and under that wing, that we're, I'm going to promote all of the other options that are sane, and all the books that you've all written. And uh, and I'm going to go. Well, I'm glad like, you're going to do that. I mean, here's the article I told you about. Let me let me read from it. I'll get. I'll tell you what publication it's in. <laughs> and I'm I, I'm talking about Canada now. Okay. Um, these are examples of programs that have been shown to be effective in prevention and are almost diametrically opposed to the AA speaker model that presumes 
that compelling, horrifying, or entertaining war stories will successfully arm (laughs) children for facing addictive and substance abuse opportunities. The idea of self-efficacy applies equally in moving from prevention to secondary prevention and treatment for young people who have already become involved, perhaps problematically, with substances. Three common approaches to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment in Canada are motivational interviewing, solution-focused therapy, and narrative therapy. All work in some way with the concept of self-efficacy, and all thus conflict with the powerlessness that is the foremost in the 12-step approach. I wrote this with somebody who's involved in this, but as I said, it has to remain unnamed. Mm-hmm. Motivational interviewing as a therapeutic approach utilizes self-efficacy as a central tenet. One of the many strategies that Miller and Rolnick suggest will help motivate a person to change their substance use is simply to support self-efficacy. From a motivational perspective, supporting a person's view that they themselves are able to alter their own substance use is at the core of the change process, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the belief that the person can only rely on a power greater than themselves in order to make changes. Supporting self-efficacy also implies that the person, rather than the therapist or the program, is the one who makes decisions Mm -hmm. about what needs to change, when the changes are to occur, and how the changes will happen. This approach is particularly crucial when it comes to young people who may be at a point in their lives when they must develop their own decision-making skills if they are to function successfully. You really have to get a hold of this article. Yeah, uh, I really want to see it. Sounds good. Monic motivational interviewing also takes into account that all people, but especially young people, react negatively when they perceive that they are being coerced into thinking or acting according to someone else's use. Two other therapies here. The other two therapies, solution focus and narrative, derive from a larger category of family therapies that are often utilized with youth. As does motivational interviewing, these therapies contrast with the powerlessness requirement of AA, each in their own unique way. Solution-focused therapy searches for the exceptions to the problems that the youth is experiencing rather than focusing on the problem itself. A solution-focused therapist explores exceptions the young person can identify to the regular problematic patterns of substance use, Mm -hmm. i.e. episodes of safer use or controlled use. Rather than to suppress discussions of these events, as would a 12-step therapist or sponsor who would see these exceptions impeding the recognition of the need for lifetime abstinence. Damn, that's really good. This, my partner, who shall remain unnamed, that was really good what he wrote there. But focusing on exceptions, solutions that use identify themselves enhances their own empowerment. Accepting the perspective that life has become unmanageable is likely, in psychological terms, to cause youth to internalize their problems as the dominant narrative in their lives. Narrative therapy contends that our sense of reality is organized and maintained through the stories by which we circulate knowledge about ourselves and our view of the world we live in. Instead of having a negative narrative that reinforces the problem behaviors, strengthen the youth's life, Narrative therapy develops a description of the person's life that empowers the person and supports their movement in positive directions. AA participants, on the other hand, encourage, AA, on the other hand, encourages the development of an individual story shaped by older group members that follows an inevitable downward spiral, one that is designed to be almost indistinguishable from the stories of the other members. Over time, the AA member internalizes this problem-based narrative 
until it becomes an integral part of their existence, creating a self-fulfilling prophecy that requires enormous effort to escape from. Damn, yep. I didn't even write that. That's good. An narrative therapist would work with a young person to externalize rather than internalize the substance abuse problem. That is to show it is based on setting and circumstance rather than the individual's irreversible personality or biological traits. So the very approaches that Hazelton is encouraging, that Saul Selby is encouraging, that we are pushing on young people that I'm going to guess are taking place in your school are the reverse, the exact opposite of what is needed for people to develop a sense of themselves, mm-hmm. a view of their ability to overcome a problem that's required to actually overcome it. So we've discussed two things now. The lives that children lead, which are deprived of adventure and independence, mm-hmm. and the dominant mode for treatment, where they're taught that they must, you know, that AA and recovering addicts are going to give them the stories of their lives that they need to know in order to uh, to get better when the reverse is true. So you see, I'm not a very optimistic person about the nature of addiction. At, at the same time that we're – and one last mm-hmm. narrative. <clears throat> in schools, I used to go to New Providence, New Jersey, and lecture, but I got too discouraged. They have an addiction as a chronic brain disease segment that they teach all the kids. Mm-hmm. They teach kids, you know, but that's that not bullshit true. that comes out of the National it's Institute on Drug Abuse. It's, it's taught to them in schools. But Stanton, it's, that's bullshit. It's not a brain disease. You and I are on the same basis there, and it gives the exactly wrong message to young people whose mm-hmm. brains are developing. Right, right. But I'm and just pointing know. out to you that in terms of what a prevention program is supposed to be, what is being taught in the schools mm-hmm. as science, mm-hmm. and what life is like for young people, those three prongs, they don't make me very optimistic about the addiction future of the world. So... Here's the irony. <clears throat> we keep saying, oh, we've got the greatest approach in the world, AA. We've got great research that we're looking at brain scans to see what effect cocaine has on the brain. We've got such a great approach already. We're making so much headway. Mm. And you know what's going to happen? We're going to have more addiction and more addiction. It's going to become more embedded in our culture. And the ironic thing is that neither of our dominant approaches are going to disappear. Uh, you know, they just created the American Board of Addiction Medicine. <clears throat> you know, the New York Times, that's a liberal publication. You'd think wow. they'd be on our team, wouldn't you? Mm. They, no, because we have they, steppers on that, on the very high up in that in that newspaper. So I don't give a crap about the New York Times because there's steppers there way up who control it unless somebody's going to finally break a real story, which is the stuff I'm working on on my film, Stanton. And I think that... There's other papers that are writing the truth, and there's more that are, and they are the smaller cities, right? So, I mean, well, I think there is some warfare going on. Benedict Carey is somebody I'm not aware that he's addressed addiction, but he's addressed disease states in a lot of ways. I was interviewed by a New York Times reporter recently um, mm-hmm. about <clears throat> a story that's being done. Um, I can't really describe that, but. I will say that I wrote an article in a publication. You can look it up if you look up under RSA. Um, it's, a, it's a group in England that's a policy-oriented group, mm-hmm. and I have written 
addiction myths for them. Let me just search for it right now. Right, I am babe. so darn active, aren't I, with this uh, prevention yeah, article I was yeah. just reading well, to you from? Mean, but, but it's going to take a big piece strategy, like the same strategy that Marty Mann did with you know her high-level uh-huh. people and all the money people that she knew in the high society. She gave over 2,500 talks all over to the biggest companies in the United States way back in the 40s to push AA under the guise of AMA. <laughs> So what I developed. That's true. She they had a great yes. PR campaign. Yes, huge. And I don't know that what, we have anything comparable. No, well, I'm I'm creating one. And off the phone, I want to call you and and you know I know you're a busy man, but you're important in this work. That I will tell you my strategy of what I plan to do, and if we get together as a team, um, I'm willing to do exactly what she did, and I am committed. Do you have a? Do you uh do you have a good PR background, do you reckon? I don't I don't know about your professional work. What what do you have much experience in that realm? I'm a I'm a performer and um I'm a singer and a songwriter and I've done just a small bit of acting. My husband's a working actor and I have some really great PR people that could work with me. But of course you know Amy Lee Coy is somebody who makes yeah. music. I mean Amy Lee, you know, is you know we we're on the same page. Hank Hayes who left who wrote You've Been Lied To and you know he left after 17 years he and I met and have been strategizing at the other the, the You other know we're finding a pretty big team on the other side. You know the New yeah. York Times writes article after article about Nora Volkow. The New York Times really yeah, they don't I'm know my name, really. Well, that guy did call me up. But anyhow. You know um, hear me out here for a second, because I, I think that if we get one parent whose kid overdosed or whose kid, you know, AA didn't work, and they're starting to Google and search, and they find out and they hear these stories, and that article that you read is fantastic, it's going to come out, that some parents, like maybe the, the you know, of Whitney Houston or Amy, Amy Winehouse, will say, the 12th step, you know, you hear from me from an insider, let's try something else. And when they see this other world, somebody else might get on board, who, somebody at Budweiser, somebody at Coca-Cola, somebody at Johnson & Johnson. I don't care where, but there's somebody out there who has a kid who's an addict or an alcoholic, and AA is not going to work for them, and they need to read your book, and they need to read Amy's book and Hank's book and all these, you know, I mean... It's about promotion. Part of it is they had – we have to – Well, now remember, I mean, okay, I like your enthusiasm. It's contagious. <laughs> remember how we began this discussion. I've been doing this. I wrote Love and Addiction in 1975. I started doing this maybe in 1970. I've been I know. at this I over 40 for years. I know. Um, I'm not an easily discouraged human being. I have a lot of energy. I have some skills. I won't say that I'm, you know, I'm unknown, but I'm, you know, my my impact is relatively minor in this sea. And I'm, believe me, I'm not giving up. I'm still planning on having a major impact through my writing, through the internet. <clears throat> through continuing to develop treatment options. I'm mm-hmm. not quitting, but uh, I've been at this a long time, and, uh, you know, I have some sense of the sea that we're involved in. Now, here's, if I had to say something optimistic, it'll be this. 
no amount of bullshit findings in neuroscience ever seems to discourage the addiction. They're constantly saying, oh, look at this discovery, look at this discovery. If you look back at Time Magazine and Newsweek, mm-hmm. over the decades, they have a picture of the brain. They say, oh, we're almost have the key to addiction. It seems to be undefeatable. But I, I just, the article I described that I wrote, if you search RSA addiction myths in my name, I point out, you know, we have no less addiction than when any of those announcements were made. And I do the mind experiment of asking the reader to imagine, oh, do you think we're going to have less addiction in 20 years or 100 years? I ask the reader, and people don't really think that way. So I do think possibly there can be a bottoming out of that mm-hmm. approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, think I do it's really think there are positive examples. The one I read was from the Canadian, you know, uh, it's called CAMH. It's the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. On the other hand, as I say, that positive thing that there are examples that which I described to you where they're really using empirical self-efficacy encouraging things throughout Europe now 12 step groups like Hazelton are are it's like the invasion it's like D-Day during World really? War 2 in Europe in Europe they're attack they're throwing their approaches all over the continent in England are we better places they had quick come on Amy's out there in the she's in the chat room come on let's put together a team Stanton you and oh, I oh no Amy Tom Horvath, and we'll get somebody. Jim Christopher is headed off to, you know, Newfoundland, or he's going to go somewhere. Let's get a group of us and go as a, as a talk, you know, uh, a talking team of other options. Well, I, I debated a guy. You can find it probably on the internet. I debated a guy about harm reduction in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, I work with a good friend of mine um, out there, and. Uh, you know, I didn't. I was out there. I've done it. I've, I know. I'm I know out you've there been out doing there alone. it. I swear to God, I know you've been out there alone. That's why I, and I said I wasn't being like facetious. That when I realized how long ago you were at this, and I remember people in Hawaii talking about this guy, and it was you talking about that it wasn't a disease. And I remember people who went and didn't, who liked what you said. And I remember being really fearful, you know, about. Wow, what was he saying? You know, and I was like a couple of years sober, maybe like three or four years sober in my early twenties. But I, you know, do you want to take any calls, or you want to just uh, yeah, talk? Take, like go on, not take him on. Should we take one call? Okay, so does anyone? We have a bunch of people in the chat room. If anyone wants to call in, bring them. Bring them in. What's the chat room mean? Stanton Peel. Well, what I do is, if you were, if you went to your um, computer. And you went into blogtalkradio.com forward slash. Read Casey. some of what they're chatting about. Go ahead. Okay, all right. But let me give them the number. It's 818 475 9211. 818 475 9211. So here's what some of the, the they wrote. Well, the first were, they said, um, let's see, don't forget the 172 or so quotes by young people and what they thought of addiction. And then she posted an orange papers. Um, like a forum link, which I'm not going to link on from here because I'm going to leave my page, which I don't want to do. Addiction is something you – this is what somebody said. Addiction is something you are born with. I mean, this is the kind of stuff somebody told me too. I have seen many of my friends and family get help because they wanted it and are 100% cured of the habit. Even if they start using them again, at one point they were not necessary, necessary for them anymore. Um, 
once, and then someone else said, once you're addicted, you can never stop. I mean, that's what people say, like, oh, my God, if you pick it up, it's going to set off that compulsion. Well, you know I want I mean? to point out something. Um, the United States government, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, sort of the opposing agency to the NIDA, they're going to combine the two of them. They did the largest alcoholism study, alcohol study ever, NISARC. They found this. Only about 12% of alcoholics, people who are ever classified as alcohol dependent, ever enter AA or go to rehab. But three quarters of people nonetheless recover fully and achieve stable recovery. And more than half of those who achieve stable recovery continue to drink. Now, this is published on the website of the NIAAA. It's called Alcoholism Isn't What It Used to Be. Mm-hmm. It was written by the former director. Uh, it, it interviews the former director of the Treatment and Recovery uh, Research Division of the NIAAA. I think that we all This has been published. So yeah. that crazy nut you have, that person, well, who says, oh, it can't be, nobody can ever use it again and all. He's saying, well, I don't give a shit what the NIAAA says. And the NIAAA is a government agency. They tend to say what people want to hear. I don't care if they say that most people, a vast majority of people overcome without treatment in AA. I don't care if most people who they say who recover, and this is looking over people's drinking lifetime. Mm-hmm. People don't care about that information. But what I'm pointing out to you is mm-hmm. our little voices are so minor compared to the announcement by the NIAAA of the life course of alcoholism and how it ebbs and flows, but it generally ebbs, still can't impact American conceptions. No, you know South why? Selby, because we have a bully, who was the clinical Dr. director Phil. at Hazel and who I had debated, had never heard of Nisark. A man in a responsible position giving right. lectures has never heard of the major research about alcoholism and what happens to people conducted by the government's principal alcohol agency. So, you know, knowledge just can't, in my most pessimistic moments, I'll have to point out, knowledge and information doesn't overcome prejudice and cultural templates and traditions. Mm. Well, I think that we have to over, you know, we have to compete with a bully like Dr. Phil, like I don't even watch that show, and one night I just flipped it on as I was blogging, and uh, I couldn't believe what I saw a family doing to a young girl, and uh, and him included. What were they doing? They were bullying her. It was abusive about that she had to go to treatment, and it was so punitive and so, uh, you know, stepper-like that I I was. I were was they so encouraging her self-efficacy? No, no, they're making her feel like shit. It was horrible. It was so bad. And that, that kind was... of abuse, do you see? How could they do it? Dr. Phil's a pretty big show. He's going to get a lot more coverage than you do, Monica, well, we as lovely go, as we you are. We have to work with our media. Uh, nobody, through the entertainment. I mean, the, the amazing into. thing is um, how people accept this is logical. I know. They just think he knows what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Who is he that he thinks? Who is anybody, Stanton, to think that they know what every person should do to we to uh, to stop, or maybe people want to moderate. Not everybody wants to stop completely, nor does everybody have to stop forever. In fact, I've had people because of my two blogs in this show who tell me that they were in AA for 20 years, who left, who are now drinking so moderately your head would spin. And these are all people who drank like I did as a teen, and they were told that for life. Have you had like, any drinks lately, Monica? No, not yet. No. 
Are you contemplating becoming a drinker? You know, I'm I, I don't I'm think I'm thinking that it's ridiculous that I never drink for the rest of my life. I think it's ridiculous. And are you worried about drinking again? No, no. Why should I worry about it? I have a sense about. I wouldn't say you know. And it's been how many years since you've had a drink? It'll be thirty-seven. I think it's probably thirty-seven by now. My birthday was always in mid-April. You uh, didn't have children when you stopped drinking. I know. I stopped when I was eight. I, I mean, I stopped on my own stance, and I stopped before I went to a meeting. I decided I didn't want to drink ever again after a really terrible drunk in Hawaii. And I got up in the, I got on my knees, and I was like, you know, I did my prayer, and I said, I've had it. I'm done. And I didn't. I woke up the next morning, and I didn't drink. And then two weeks later, I made so a So my sense about you, I, I have a feeling, I'm not going to make any recommendations. It's not my job to tell people <laughs> to drink or not to drink. I, I sense you're a little bit different than you were when you were 18. How, how would you describe the major differences between you now and when you were 18 as a human being? I'm way less impulsive. I'm more grounded. Uh, that's a, that, that happens to a lot of people, you know what I mean? Um, I'm, more I'm waiting for myself to become less impulsive, and I'm hoping oh. it'll come within the next 20 or 30 years, but <laughs> let's leave me out of it. Um, now, um, you're, you feel you're more mature and maybe emotionally stable? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel that way. I, I didn't know you when you were 18, but I sense that, and uh, I, I'm I'm contemplating that you might be a pretty good candidate to drink occasionally. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, I wonder if Maya Salovitz ever decided to drink. She was a big 12-step fan. She had a different monkey. It wasn't alcohol. Mm-hmm. But I remember discussing with her, you know, and that was quite a long time ago, that she might uh, consider drinking alcohol. I wonder if she's drinking alcohol now. Who was that? Maya Salovitz. She's a big writer for uh, Time Healthland. So, mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. I'll send a shout out there. Maybe, maybe people who know her can uh, can find out about that. Oh, somebody! I guess you'll in. all join Drew Barrymore. Remember her, the yeah. youngest addict when she was twelve. Right. I think she's no longer addicted. You know what I mean? Right. I think she's in a different right. place now than when she was a That's right. screwed Drew up Barrymore kid. Was considered an addict at one time. I didn't remember that hearing that about her in the. You don't remember that? She was young, America's younger ecstatic. She was on the cover of People magazine. She went into a retreatment, and then she tried to commit suicide. Everybody was analyzing her, the Dr. Phil's of that time, saying, mm-hmm. you know, her grandfather was an alcoholic, her father was a drug addict. She's obviously mm-hmm. genetically determined to be an oh, addict yeah, for all of her life. Oh and then God, she became a big star, life, became a right? producer. I, I, I sense that she drinks non-alcoholically now. Yeah, you know. Robert, so uh, um, you know, uh, maybe you should have your first drink on air or something. I don't know. You haven't <laughs> tasted alcohol in any way, shape, or form, huh? Well, not not a drink. Like I mean, I have I, I cook with it, and I have for quite a while. And um, you know that they they won't. You know there are a lot of AA diehards who say you can't do that. Oh, right? they're they're insane. They're, it's a cult. It's a crazy cult. Here's the caller. Let's just, let's see what this caller. Is let's see who's caller. You're live. Can I have your name, please? Hey, it's Gunther. Hey, Gunther, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm good. You're talking. You want to talk to Stanton Peel here? Have yeah, a I, I I wanted to talk about talking about doing it on the doing it on the air. <laughs> I uh, 
I wouldn't encourage it. Personally, I Why not? have 37 years. Well, I figure why dance with the devil? If it caused you that much trouble and you've been successful, you don't need it. It's what do you make of that knee-dark data that most people that are no longer alcoholic who were, were on still drink? What do you make of that research? How do you well, think I that happens? I think that How do you think that most off. people outgrow alcoholism, Gunther? How do I think they outgrow it? Yeah, well, how do they, I'll just tell you what the government research says. Only 12% of alcoholics go to AA or rehab, but three-quarters are in stable recovery, and a majority of those still drink. Tell me what that's about. I have no idea. It's something I can't understand. You have no idea of what the majority of people do in drinking. Why don't you know what the majority of people do, and why would you speak knowledgeably then if you don't? Here, you want? Would you like to learn what most people do? Would you like no, to learn how that happens? No. Most people grow not, older. Not. They become stabler. They become parents. Uh-huh. It turns out that alcohol doesn't have an inherent effect on many people, so it's not the case that Whenever they drink, they have the same reaction to it. But as they change their role in life, alcohol has a different impact on them, and they have a different reaction to it. What do you think of that concept? I think it's entirely possible. I don't see any reason why not. Of course. I'm glad you feel that way. Do you, I mean, you know, it's not for us to judge Monica's life. She's her own best judge. Do you feel that in any way relates to Monica's life story, you know, in the 37 years since she stopped drinking when she was 18? Do you think that fits her story at all? Uh, that she's I'm not matured? sure. I, all I can say is, that, you know, when when I heard her say that she was contemplating it, I automatically went into a little bit of a panic here. <laughs> Uh, what do you Maybe make of the fact that she cooks with uh, Let's get back What do you think of the fact that she cooks with alcohol How do you feel about that Oh I don't think that That's an issue at all I take NyQuil myself And I, I've been sober for five years uh, Does NyQuil have alcohol in it Yeah huh. Huh. If I get sick enough I take some NyQuil I don't believe that yeah. I'm powerless can... over alcohol That's ridiculous and, um, so, but I, but I how old are you now, Monica? I'm 54. Well, here's how I view life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think everybody, it's not for me to decide whether anybody should drink. It's not for me. I never tell anybody to start drinking again. But um, I do think that we, when we create a world where more and more people feel they're out of control of their behavior, that more and more people think that, uh, they're overwhelmed by these kinds of experiences. I think we diminish ourselves as a race, as a species. I think the fact that more and more people see themselves in that light is is making a, uh, is declining civilization and and diminishing us as human beings. So you know, it's not for me to judge any individual or to tell any person what to do. How widespread these experiences are becoming, how fear-inspiring they're making us, is to me a, a sign that that life is becoming more, less worth living. I think that Gunther, you know, he and I have talked personally on the, from the blogs we met on Stinking Thinking, 
And, you know, I, I think that for someone who, as I left and as I stayed away and I started to deprogram myself, I thought how bizarre if I were to tell a young person who had a story like mine, I, I mean, I had Drink Link moderation on Donna Corbett, and she was so sane. And she said they laughed her out of the rooms 20 years ago. And she's created a program that's not for people who've gotten into trouble yet, but those who are just drinking too much and want to drink in a more healthy way. And I thought, wow, that's fantastic. And I interviewed Kenneth Anderson, and I thought, gee, you know, isn't that saner? And I've seen my son just, like, drink so moderately after he was just hammering it for, like, three years, you know. And his, when he turned 21, it was just, you know, really amazing. And for me to be more sane with my 17-year-old and let him have a beer and stop being a freaking AA Nazi in a nutbag... And then I'm going to have a woman who's um, on next week, who's from the St. Jude's <coughs> retreat, who has a different, you know, take on it. And I've talked to other people, and I started, to, and I had, uh, I talked to an ex-sponsee, and I told her where I was at, and she was like, "Well, do you think you're not an alcoholic anymore?" And I said, "Yeah, I don't call myself that anymore. I think it's bullshit." And she was like, "You could, I freaked her out." It hey, totally I want to ask Gunther, do you have children, Gunther? Yes, I do. How old are they? He's 21. How does he I drink? I taught him that he's not powerless and that it's that's bullshit. That thinking that How's way he is drink? bullshit. He drinks normally, like he'll have a beer once in a while with his friends, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, Congratulations, Gunther. I'm really good, proud of you. Good. I mean, mm-hmm. whenever I hear somebody who had an alcohol problem themselves produced offspring that drink <laughs> without problems, I think you've cured a disease. Something that you that came to you in a bad way, you passed on in a good way. That's fabulous. And I guess if you had the guts to allow and to monitor your son's drinking, mm-hmm. that you could, you know, that you must have had some apprehensions. You thought, well, what about me? I mean, won't he be like me? No, not that anymore. takes some real guts, and I that's a thousand times because, more difficult yeah. than thinking about Monica in her fifties having a drink. To me, well, I really, I really, you know, I don't want to say that I give you all the credit, but I, I do have to say that your books, along with speaking to other people who, um, you know, have kids, and uh, that I decided that I even said to the youngest one, I said, I want you to feel that it's safe if you ever want to get drunk it here in the house where it's safe and rather than you know down at the you know somewhere in LA like on the street or trying to get illegal you know too much alcohol and uh, that wouldn't be good we have another person calling in should we take one more? we have only five minutes let's Gunther I want to say let's take another time has flown I can't believe it let's take the other but I wanted to ask Gunther if I had more time All right, hold on. Yeah, what do ahead, you think the most important thing you taught your child was that makes it that he's not an alcoholic or he doesn't drink that way. What's the one thing you felt you con- conveyed to him the most that was most important psychologically? That he, that he doesn't necessarily have to turn out like me. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Would you say you gave him a lot of independence? Yes, I did. I certainly did. You got a lot of guts, Gunther. I like you, Gunther. All right, let's get the other caller in. Okay, thanks, Gunther. I'm going to put you you on hold. Okay, thanks for calling in. All right, right. we'll talk again. All right, let's see who else. What a miracle. A man who's an alcoholic produces children in Warren. Can I have your name? Oh, did he hang up? It's ironic. Oh, hi. How are you? 
I'm okay. Um, I'm, I actually missed the beginning of the show. Uh, you know, I'm across the country, but um, right. I wanted to ask, sorry, because you're on with Stan Peel, I wanted to ask, you know, you guys were talking a lot about, you know, being older and alcoholism, and I can't really relate to either. But what about for those of us that are still young? What, but what about for us young junkies out there? I mean, you know, it's pretty, I don't know, a lot of people get turned off from AA hearing things like, oh, you, you can't drink ever again, or you can't smoke pot ever again. I don't know, that's just not what you want to hear when you're trying to put down the needle or anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How old are you? I'm 22. And what, do you have an addiction problem? Well, I used to be an IV, um, Roxy, and heroin user. Uh, how long ago was that? Uh, I've been taking Subutex for about 18 months, and I'm almost completely tapered off of it. I had just like half a milligram What's a day your life Subutex. like? Uh, are, you in, uh, are you in school or working? Yeah, I'm actually about to graduate. I'm in my last semester of college, Yay! getting my BA. <laughs> um, yeah, congratulations. You feel pretty awesome. good about that? Thank you. I mean, yeah, I do. Every, things have definitely gotten better since I stopped using, but, I mean, I still smoke pot. So if you ask, I guess, AA person, it's, I'm kind of a total failure. I don't What's know. What's your name? I had a couple. Um, my name's Emily. They call me Ironic. Emily. I think I mentioned this to Monica several times. Fuck AA. We're talking about you and your <laughs> life. That's right. We're not going to spend all, well, I mean, I know Monica's really? trying to defeat AA, but what we want to talk about is... How your life has improved and what makes enables you to improve. Uh, we don't want to be spending all our time fighting phantoms from the outside the universe. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. um, that AA. But do you think much about what AA tells you? Well, I got put through quite well. Not quite a few. I got put through an eight-week private rehab, and then I did a stint in public re. And like you know, the state state outpatient. They they marchman acted me once. That was pretty shitty. So I just had to sit through a lot of it. But I was always kind of an outsider. I never really. I don't know. They always kind of viewed me as toxic. So they would like in rehab. They would tell people like. She's like she's talking. Have you gotten over your rehab experience? I mean, you've got so many positives in your life now. You know the way you're graduating and looking forward to the future. Have you gotten over that traumatic experience? Do you think? I don't think I'll ever get over. I don't think I'll ever get over that. Some of that was pretty horrible. I mean, but my rehab was especially. I don't want to emphasize the negatives, and sometimes I. Mm argue with Monica about that. I, I mean, we're we're only going to have a better world with better people in it if we greet the new day positively and feel that opportunity is before us. The, ne- I, the next time I hear from you, if I'm on Monica's show again, I only want you to talk about great things you're doing, great relationships you're having, good feelings you have about yourself. It's almost like an addiction to be dragged down constantly by your past experiences with rehab. If you feel you're doing well, if you're confident in your life, I believe those things will just disappear into nothingness. We have 30 seconds Emily. to wrap it up. Um, ironic, Emily, I'm so glad you called in. She and I talk on the phone. Thank you for calling in. Stanton, I want to thank you so much. Um, it was a great hour, and uh, I really... Uh, Monica, <laughs> I, I love your energy. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm going to defeat the forces of evil in the world before I hang it up. Don't don't you worry. Okay, good. We'll 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 form a team, and I'll call you at another time to tell you my strategy. 
Okay. Great to hear from you. Okay. Bye to everybody. Thank you, again, thank everybody. you for having and me we'll on your you. show. Thank you so much. Thank and you. next week, thanks, Emily, for calling in. Thank you, Monica. And no judgment from me from on me. the pot smoking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, sweetie. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So, yeah, bye, everybody. Um, love your opinion. See you on the Orange Papers Forum. See you on Leaving AA Blog if you want. And next week we're going to have uh, a guest from the Baldwin Institute and the St. Jude's Institute on um, a program that is completely a non-12-step. And thanks again, everybody. Uh, talk to you later. Bye.